Welcome to the Black Minds Matter podcast. I'm Mac, kicking with my man Rev, and this is a now production. Yo, Rev, what's going on with you, man? How you feeling? Feeling good, feeling great, feeling great, feeling good. How are you? Yeah, yeah. All right. All, All right, right that's, what, that's what I want to hear, man. You know what I'm saying? Make sure you're doing well. Y'all make sure you go around and check on your peoples. You know what I'm saying? You don't get to see them all the time, especially the strong ones. Check in on them. All right, that was another PSA. You know I just <laughs> drop those every once in a while. Yeah, the strong well, ones, yeah. right? Like yeah, who checks strong. on the person that checks, right? Like that's who? It. <laughs> that is it. The ones that you think, oh, they'll be okay. Then the ones that's really going through it. Y'all reach out and check on them. We know we talked about that on, you know what I'm saying, Mind Playing Tricks episode. Y'all go back to season one and check that out. Right. But in the meantime, we're going to talk today on a subject. Red, why don't you go ahead and uh, hit the people to what's going on? All right, man. So I have somebody, we have somebody on this on this podcast that I consider a friend, somebody I work with for uh, over four years at what I call the PWI, the pro- predominantly white institution, um, which was a, which was a school. Um, his name is, is uh, John Thomas. John is, uh, like I said, I consider him a friend. He, he's smart. Um, you know, and and just so you all know, John is white, but he is not inflicted with the disease of blindness to race. Like that is the, it's it's annoying and things of that nature. But John and I have had several conversations about um, race relations and and the United States and things. So I will introduce my man John Thomas. Please get on the mic and let us know a little bit about you, and then we'll dive into what we're talking about today. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, both of you. Um, yeah, like you said, I am definitely predominantly white here. Um, <laughs> I think that's a really good way to put it. I love that. Just like the P- the P- PWI, the predominantly white institution. Oh, man, that's it's really a great way to put it without naming it, right? I mean, there's so much implication in that. Um, I actually came from a uh, uh, the southern state, uh, North Carolina. That's where I grew up. Uh, I did move to Texas 15 years ago, but I had this really nice kind of intermediary place of living in Chicago too. And that's where we kind of began talking Yeah, because you're from Illinois and I'm, you know, and I lived in Chicago for so many years and I call that my great awakening period. Um, well, let me because ask a really question was. about that. Were you awakening to like life or just the frigid cold? Because it is absurdly cold. And it's cold, <laughs> man. Oh yeah, I mean, I moved. I moved to Texas 15 years ago, and I I swear I'm still thawing out. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. You know, 100 degree weather is what it's going to take. So right. So so John, give us a little bit about your background, educationally, what you do for a living, all that good stuff. Anything you want to share with the people? Yeah. So uh, I am an educator. I've taught both secondary in the high school area and in college. Um, I have a bachelor's in English and communication double major, a master's in religion, a master's in educational philosophy, and I'm now doing a master's PhD double in clinical psych. So I didn't, I didn't know you were getting three masters, sir. I mean, I'm just that's overkill I, at this point. It's it really is. I kind of just want to create a whole extra name. You know, <laughs> some people have four names after, you know, like they don't have just a middle name. They've got like four or five. That's what I'm trying to do since my parents didn't give me four. So but uh, you're, but wow. your your name, John Wesley, is after the theologian. Right. Am I correct? I mean, mostly. Yes. Yes, it is, because it's. I was named after my great grandfather, who was named after John Wesley. Okay, staunch, oh, okay. staunch, staunch, staunch Methodist background, you know, um, in that in that process. So, 
Okay. So that's perfect. So that will help us, you know, saying talk to you about some things. So you already got a biblical, you got a, like a, a beget, beget, beget of John Wesley. So you can be great to talk about this biblical stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. Just don't, you know, put any Pope issues on me. I don't, I don't, don't put any of that pedestal on there. I don't know if I can speak for all that, but uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is biblical studies is something that I love and I've been doing for, you know, near 20 years now. And I don't think I'll ever go a day without doing something about that, you know, to a degree. I always said, if I went back, I know I'm getting my uh, EDD now, uh, doctor in education administration, but I always said that if I was to go back and do something like just for fun, it would be in religious studies. Um, I, I believe just from, I'm going to nerd out here for a second and I'm a historian. I believe religion shapes the world more than anything else. What people believe or, and, or the guise of religion and how people mm -hmm. use that as a reason to inflict pain or to take over or whatever. But today we are yeah. going to, we are going to touch in the religious space a little bit. So um, Mac and I are Midwest guys who have both lived in the South. Mac spent some time in Atlanta, uh, me in Texas. John is from the South and spent some time in the Midwest. So you see how those things sort of coincide. And we want to talk today about um, the conservative Christian, the conservative, and then we can even say the conservative, I don't want to just say Southern, but the conservative Christian, right? And, and I say that, we'll define that in a minute. Um, I don't necessarily think Jesus was conservative, the, the Jesus we serve. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily consider him. I, for his time, he would have been considered radical, right? Um, you know, going against the, the, the established church. So we want to first start off with the conservative Christian and just how that plays into race relations in the United States. Are we good with that topic, everybody? That's oh, great. yeah, that good. All right. So let's first do this. Let's define conservative Christianism. Does John, you want to take a swing at what you think it is? We don't have to use Merriam Webster, but yeah, we maybe, just, you know, maybe we think? just maybe we just figure out some aspects that we could agree on about okay. it. Like, like for example, I would say uh, conservative Christianity is much more tied to the political movement of conser of conservatism than other forms of Christianity. Okay. Um, that's one big thing I would say about it. It is predominantly in the South, but we do see it in places like California and in the North as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you Here's something very interesting that I find about it. A lot of it you see coming from um, like a Baptist or a, a Protestant background, and yet you also have predominantly black churches coming from those same mm. denominational places, mm -hmm. right? Like Southern Baptist is where I grew up and a Southern Baptist, you know, church in my hometown was very different than a Southern Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina, for example. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And it, so, so I found something that, that says like conservative Christians seek to influence politics, like you were saying, the, the more political realm and public policy with their interpretation of the teachings of Christianity. Right. right. They're, so they're taking that and they're trying to mix the politics in with that. And a lot, like you said, it is mostly baked in the South, but it is starting to have its tentacles in other places in, in the United States. And and it is, you know, we use the Bible to govern that type of that type right. of thing. And oftentimes, you know, since a lot of people believe the Bible doesn't address racism head on which I disagree. I think it does address racism oh, does. head on, but a lot of people yeah. don't believe it addresses racism head on. Therefore, um, people will try to say, you know, well, either I, they use the I'm colorblind doctrine or that, you know, God doesn't recognize color, et cetera. And I'm like, but he made us. So if he doesn't recognize color, then why did he make me different? So that's right. that. So, so, 
point out color and different people from different nations. Like, come on, people, what are you reading? But you know, right. what I'm I mean, interrupt. Go ahead. Well, I don't, I don't know if y'all know this, but in the 1800s, um, a lot of British missionaries would actually take out the parts of uh, the Exodus, uh, the whole entire Moses story, yes, because right. they did not, they did not want anyone to think about the idea of, of individual freedom. And then they would actually supplant that with making sure that they focused on, you know, the, the parts of the new Testament. that's like, Hey, if you're a slave, be the best slave you're going to be. And, you know, while also taking out, there's no slave, no man, no woman that, you know, those same things they did that adamantly. Yeah, they did that on purpose, too, to use it as a yep. weapon. You know what I'm saying? We've been talking about this before. We haven't done a whole episode or anything on it. But, yeah, there is a slave Bible. And there's multiple versions, but most of them take out large chunks of the things that give you free will and say there should be no man or woman that are slave or, or anything to that effect. I know I totally didn't, you know, say quote it right, but go look it up if y'all understand what I'm talking about. It's there. So, so speaking of that, the Exodus story itself is a story of freedom and, and, and like, you know, being free from bondage and look, some conspiracy there. No, 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 say conspiracy theories. No, because I, I have heard conspiracy theories talk about this, but I was actually listening to um, Louis Farrakhan and there's a, there's, there's a YouTube and he's talking about the Exodus and we'll get to conservative Christian in, in, in a second and, and why it's taken out and how they, you know, some people can use it as a weapon or whatever, but he was saying that, um, you know, the Exodus was not necessarily a history. It's a foreshadowing, right? It's actually talking about the story of African-Americans in the United States, right? Because the, 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 they are so closely aligned in the freedom and Exodus. And when you were saying, John, that they take it out, there is a slave Bible. There's an article out right now in a news story about the slave Bible. I think one is on the exhibit in one of the museums in, in the DC area right now where you can go and see it. And those parts were taken out. So back to the, back to the thing at hand. So how do we think, and I'll open it up to, to everybody. Um, and I'll, I'll wait to give my opinion. How do we think, or what do we think um, is the impact of Christianity and how it bumps against racism and the racial things that are happening in the United States of America. Like, what do we think it's roles, the, like the roles of Christian in racism? Like, I know it's sort of a broad question, but I just want to throw it out there. Just what do we think? Mm. I know it's not you want to attack with that one first because I don't want to jump out there. I want, I want my guest to go ahead and have his space. <laughs> well, uh, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, as I as I think we have to consider Christianity here, we want to consider it as a tool that has constantly been used to elevate the idea of white body supremacy. Mm. Now, I'm not talking yeah. just about, you know, the sect of uh, Southern conservative Christianity. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, you know, this nation, we talk about how, oh, you know, America is founded on you know, biblical Christian principles. Yeah, it is. They used it to make, you know, uh, complete rectification of, or uh, not rectification, but a, a complete authorization of their use of slavery, right? Uh, we see that. And in fact, it's really interesting because you, you, I don't know, like the idea of, you know, the, the Puritans are moving over, they're, they're getting over here because they're trying to leave uh, the exact same sort of thing. They're leaving this slave sort of process that they were put into between the Protestant and the Catholic 
fighting going on in, in England, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have all these rich men come in and they're like, well, how are we going to get these guys on our side? Well, let's give them a little bit of elevation. You're an indentured servant, but we are very different from these other people that we're bringing in. In fact, you don't ever see anything about skin color or tone until about the 17th century. Uh, and we were here 200 years before that, right? So Right. They're talking about the people, the Irish, the German, the whatever. And then all of a sudden we see in the late 1600s or middle 1600s, white, black, you know, and that coming out. So right. it's just a really interesting connection there. So so just for a little more historical background, what John is talking about. So when when people first came over, it wasn't necessarily things were more or less based on race. I mean, race existed, but it really wasn't based on race, more class, like rich, poor. Right. Mm-hmm. But then a part of it was how do we get the rich and the poor to fight amongst themselves? I mean, the, the poor to fight amongst themselves, mm-hmm. make it about race, right? Make it about race. And then of course there was a lot of biblical principles used to justify slavery, which is absurd. We talked about that before with the curse of, with the curse of uh, Canaan and the curse of ham and all that, that, you know, and they're like, well, you know, black people can be traced back to ham and, and he was cursed. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not true. Canaan was cursed not ham. So like, you got to actually read it. And then the Canaanites were wiped out. So don't act like the, the black people from the lineage of ham were supposed to be slave. It's all BS. Right. But we just have to know that religion has used, you know, the Bible and, and things. And here's the thing, we're all Bible believers, right? Like, like we, you know, the, the principles of the Bible, at least I believe in the principles of the Bible. So I know that it, it is a misused tool like like john was saying like christianity is a tool um i I just think that in today's climate um you you get those and i don't want to say i don't want to say us versus them but people use christianity as a shield to either pretend racism doesn't exist and you know we're all brothers and sisters in christ right we're brothers and sisters in christ but the world aren't isn't treating us right one of us is getting treated like a bald head stepchild here right and, yeah. and a lot of times Christians don't want to face it. So when I go to churches and I go to either predominantly black churches, predominantly white churches or mixed or what have you, I don't hear anybody in the pulpit really talking about race relations. And I think it should in in Christ, right, in the church, we should talk about those things. It's just my opinion. What do you all think? Man, I have been fortunate enough to have recently, well, if I go back further, three pastors, white pastors, um, two of which, no, all three of those churches were predominantly white, and they got on stage. All three of them said things about racism, things about, you know what I'm saying, color, and that God sees color, and we should see this more often. Now, one of them speaks more strongly about it, and that's who I'm with now, as we were, you know what I'm saying, he'll be on the show eventually. But um, yeah, it's great when you can hear that from the pulpit, from a stage where people are all paying attention to and trying to learn about God, learn about his information, his love, Oh yeah, and he loves black people too. Oh yeah, he loves Indians and Native Americans. I hate using Indians because they were the natives here. Um, he loves all people. Now, why don't you? He created us to be reflection or, or to show his image on this earth. Now, why don't you do the same things he was talking about? Oh no, no, that's that's too far. That's what God can do. That's what Jesus does. I'm not. I'm human. I'm just no, no. Look, people, why are you making these designations? Why are you changing up the rules about the the things God has given us. 
the opportunities we have to come together as brothers and sisters. If you look in Revelation, you're talking about how all the nations, he was able to look out and see a multiple, multitude of peoples from all nations. And they were all there singing and celebrating. But we can't do that if we can't come together in the same spot without there being terrorism and fights and all kinds of stuff going on. I just feel like there's a, a big social change that needs to happen. And I, I think it starts in the church. I think if we're going to be uh, able to attack this, we start with a foundation that we all believe in Jesus, if that's what we all believe in, and then go from there. Right. But, you know, yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And I don't think even talking about race is enough either within the church. I think the church mm -hmm. has to actually also take on a sense of cultural humility mm -hmm. to the point that they need to, to recognize you have a lot of great pastors out there that, but a lot of these, you know, a lot of these sermons are geared towards a white audience. Like, how do you handle your finances? How do you do this? How do you save this amount of money? Right. And yeah. that's not, those things are not relevant. We have different cultural mm. uh, processes of how those things are relevant to us. Uh, you know, a black culture needs to hear what is relevant to them on stage. Why do we think that there are so many predominantly black churches and then white churches? And, you know, it's so cliche, like Sunday morning is the most segregated time. But why would you ever spend waste time going to a white church when literally everything coming from a pulpit just has nothing to do with you? It's all yeah. about white culture, even if they're not intending to do it. Right. Right. It, it could be totally, you know, open to that. But this does that need to say. You, we need pastors that not only recognize race, but say, we as a church are going to bring about a, a complete cultural understanding of each other as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And we are going to continue to do that and learn almost at, to a point that it has to be ecumenical. Does that make sense where we're, we're thinking of that even an interfaith look mm -hmm. at it? So Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I think it is it is becoming upon the pastors, right? And not just the pastors, but but people of the church. Like if Christians are who they say they are, right? These people who follow Christ and Christ loves all, um, you know, then why are we not acting that out in our lives? And I think a part of that is what you're saying is since church is so segregated, why is church so segregated? Well, because you aren't talking to me about things that are relevant to my life. Right. Yes, right. And, yeah. and, and, but, but also I think this is something that's big as well. Um, we bring our culture into church. So I've been doing religious studies in, in my, in my classroom and we are looking at Christianity and not only Christianity, but Islam and things all over the world. And Islam in the United States does not look like Islam in Sri Lanka. That does not look like Islam in China, et cetera. So Christianity in the United States does not look like Christianity in Colombia does not look like Christianity in Australia. Culture has a lot to do with how we praise and serve our God. It doesn't matter if it's a Christian God and an Islamic God, a Jewish God or what have you. So I think that if we only view God the way that we view God, then we might think the way somebody else view God isn't right. And we think that we're better. Right. My, my, my perfect example of mm. this is that it, it, this is going to sound really strange and I'm going to sound like sort of like I, I was dumb, but I had to realize, and I told my, like, like something just popped in my head and was like, we well, you know God speaks Spanish. And I know that sounds weird, but I've been reading the Bible one way in English. Right. Right. And I have 
all of my sensibilities and my ideologies of God have been shaped by where I live, who I am, where I'm from, et cetera. Well, people in other cultures, right? God talks to them too. And, but he has to meet them where they are with their cultures, their traditions, and their backgrounds. And I think sometimes we as, well, I, I mean, Christians fine, but I think a lot of times in the United States, what happens is we have this us versus them. We have it right. The way we do it is the right way. And I believe mm. that that brings a lot of racist practices into Christianity because, you know, we praise him this way or we think of God this way. We don't necessarily respect how somebody else views God. Right. Well, as a nation, I don't feel like we respect others of the rest of the world, period. I mean, we've already made ourselves a superpower, supposedly. So, of course, our religion should be the, the number one religion. We should be the superpower there also. Right. I, that's how I see us. And I feel like that's how the world sees the United States. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's going to be some issues when we deal with religion, something that not everybody can get on the same accord with. You can't just take Christianity to India, for example. You can't take it to some of these other places and it be seen the same way because mm-hmm. they feel totally different. That's just their region. I would right. love for us all to come mm-hmm. together, but we got some other issues to work out before we can get together on who's God. So, so John, I want to ask you a question about this. So if we are, if we are to do what you said and have cultural appropriation in the church, right? Like, you know, so, Hey, the churches need to be more, um, um, thoughtful of their audience with cultures being so different, even the United States, how do we do that? How do we marry two cultures under the same God? Because the cultures are so vastly different. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be two. It could be 10. But how do we begin to do that under a religious umbrella? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. And I definitely don't have an answer for that. But I do think the answer begins with um, this idea of colorblindness that the church brings on a lot. This pretending, oh, cool. yeah, uh, I think we stop, stop we stop that we stop that immediately, and we recognize <laughs> that there can be unity in diversity, right? Mm. There's 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 the ability to be unified while still being diverse, um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't want to be in p- participating uh, in a church where everybody is thinking the exact same way as I am. I want to learn from a multiplicity of people. And that, I mean, you know how churches are like, okay, well, we're going to put the single people over here. We're going to put the kids over here. We're going to do this. They need to stop doing that too. And they need to make multi-generational groups of people so that they can learn. The best small group I was ever in was a multi-generational small group where we had people that were 70, 50, 40, 30, 20. And it was just that the amount of learning that could happen just through that. Now imagine that multiculturally as Mm -hmm. well. I mean, how cool would it be to be in a small group and you have all these different uh, heritages, cultures represented and breaking bread of a particular, you know, type of food each week that's different, representing different people. And think about the idea of what that would bring to this, this, uh, a whole new idea to communion, if you ask me. Right. I agree. You know, I like, I love it. I, I like the idea. And it, that would be some of, we, we having to shed off our ideas of supremacy. And when I say yeah. supremacy, like our culture is better than other people's cultures. Right. And that could be white, black, what have you. I'll be honest. Right. Like I prefer the black church. 
it is much cooler. Like, right? Like, I'm just, I'm being completely honest. Oh, I agree <laughs> with you. It's definitely much cooler. To the black churches I've been to, I have never had, I've never lost that many calories sitting at church <laughs> in my life. Like, I left like four pounds lighter and also in need of a shower. You know, oh, yeah. it was, it was you incredible. Move. You don't move. Definitely. Right, right. So, but, but with that, seriously, though, it's, it's, I think, you know, when it comes to racism and it comes to Christianity and racism and things, I, I get confused because we can stop all this racist stuff if we just first begin to think of the things we have in common. We both believe in this guy named Jesus, for example. Let's start there instead of talking about the differences. And, and I think we as humans, and I don't know, I don't know if it is a United States thing or if it's a global thing where we really look at that's them this is us first, right? Instead of what we have in common, we look at what is what makes us different. And I believe it has something to do with American individualistic, like ideology, oh, yeah, right? Sure. Like I'm my Absolutely. own person. But if we shed that, and, and I think the church can lead the way because we have such a strong belief in a particular thing that should be able to unite all. Right. Right. And that's something that should be happening. And I feel like it is happening with certain churches with their mission trips and the different times they go overseas or to different countries. But you also got to remember the history of Christians going to different countries and going to different areas. It is not a good history. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to do so well immediately with us going over as, all right, let's be honest. Most of the time, a mission trip is not a whole lot of dark-skinned peoples. You know, it's a lot of white people going into an area where they're going to try to bring Christ. And that did not work out too well for Africans when they came over here. I'm just mm -hmm. putting that out there. That did not work too well in plenty of countries and small indigenous peoples once that happened. And things just totally changed. You totally tear up their traditions, their whole society, the whole way that they originally were has now been changed because this white Jesus has come into their world. Now, right. I'm not saying that's, you know what I'm saying? How do I phrase that? I'm, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm, uh, yeah, I, so, I, yeah. Can you feel what I'm saying here? It's not yeah. the best thing that's been going on, but we need to get over that hurdle. Now, how do we get over that hurdle? How do we get past all the things of the past that I haven't figured out? But as, that is as a whole, white Christianity has to repent. Exactly. Yes. I mean, absolutely yes, it has, has to, to repent. repent. Whoa. And like half the like white Christianity. And what I mean by that is American Christianity and, and Christianity that developed from basically after Protestantism developed is, is the recognition that it, that Christianity has been used as a colonizing tool. Yes. You're going over there to go into wherever and you're like, Oh, Hey, we want to convert you. But let's be honest. The idea there is we're going to convert you, but we're going to take your minerals. We're going to, we're going to take yeah. what's, what's worth on the land. We're going to take your bodies and we're going to break uh -huh. them, you know, and that's, that's horrific. And it was really even interesting is, it's kind of an idea that was even developed from the Crusades, even before then Constantine. What's interesting about the Crusades is after it ended, you had this whole section of Christians living with Muslims over in the Turkish area. Yeah. And you yeah. know, I don't know if you know this, but it was they were getting along. That ultimately led to the huge growth in theology, in um uh, the, in philosophy, that's where you have Aquinas and those guys start mm -hmm. coming in later on as an as an outgrowth of those two communities connecting together and getting along. 
Right. If I'm not mistaken, that also came because a lot of those guys that went on those crusades and they came back and they're like, what did we do all this for? Exactly. We did this for a God who's loving and doesn't want us to kill. Thou shalt not kill. We just went murdered and massacred people. Mm-hmm. What did we really do? Are we really following the right God? And yes, that caused him to think more. And that's where you get more philosophers and theologians that come from that situation. So- so speaking of like the like what John was saying that it's been used as a weapon to colonize and, and basically imperialize, it's like this. We, you know, people take Christianity to a place, they give it to the natives and say, I give you my Bible, you give me your land, right? Like that's the exchange, right? You give me yes. your bodies, you give me your land, and that's not what it's supposed to be. And I believe, like, so you know, a part of manifest destiny, right? It's 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 our destiny to take over, and and that 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 is steeped in Christian Christianism as well, right? Where it's like we like like there there have been Christians in the past and 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 throughout history that are like, well, this is a part of God's divine plan for us to rule, and it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's not. But I think you said something heavy there. White Christianity needs to repent. Like, like that, like that's heavy. I've never heard it put that way. Like the white church needs to repent. And I'm like, that's true because it's been weaponized. And, and I know people today may still be weaponized. Yes. People may say that I didn't do it. Right. You didn't do it, but the, but the privilege that you live in it, you're still, you're, you're still benefiting from the dirt of your ancestors. You're still benefiting from the, the, the pain and exploitation of others. So even though you may not have done it, if you are living in the privilege and, and enjoy the exploits, there is a repentance, there is an apology, and there is, there, there must be an intentional change, right? Right. Like you said, it's not just talking, it's an intentional change. So go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please. no, no, you're right. You weren't done with your point, man. No, no, please go ahead. Seriously. Well, yeah, what I was just going to point out is repent. I, I don't know if everyone really understands what repent to repent means. It means to turn from what you were doing. If you were going this direction, you were turning away from that direction and changing your ways. You're trying to figure out where did I go wrong so I could be more like Christ, so I could follow more of God's teaching. So repent, turn away, change from what you're already doing. And people think they could just slowly adjust. I'm gonna just tweak this. No, you gotta turn. It's a full turn. Some situations need to be 180. You need to go back the other way. But you cannot continue going the way that you're going. Right. Just want to put that out there. So, so with the with the political angle of Christianity, right? And we can we can talk about you know abortion laws or whatever. I, I, however you want to however you want to do that. How do we address those? Christians, conservative or liberal, who believe that God or their Christian beliefs, let's say Christian beliefs, I don't want to say God, their Christian beliefs should be a part of political, um, not just jargon, but political policy. Like, what do we do with that? Right. Well, I mean, I don't think you can, I mean, honestly, and, and as a person that believes as much as I can to separate church and state, I don't think you can actually separate religion from politics ever. I don't think it's possible, mm-hmm. but the, but the problem with the conservative Christian movement is that it hides its racism behind morality. And mm-hmm. that's a really big issue. Um, and, you know, you look at writers like uh, Anthea Butler, who just wrote um, what white, white evangelical racism, I think is the name of the book. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. Check it out. I'm not sure. But she, but she was, ta- uh, I remember a line that she wrote. She says, in evangelical in evangelicalism, uh, especially white evangelicalism, um, specifically, 
racism is not a bug it's a feature um, it's mm. not a little part of it but it's an actual feature but it's a feature that does hide behind what i would think morality like Honestly, like nobody even talked about abortion before the 1960s, right? What was right. happening in the 1960s? You know, you have you have women, women voting, civil rights, all of these mm -hmm. things coming together, white men losing control to mm -hmm. some degree. And mm -hmm. so what is what are they going to do? Right. And so you I mean, you even have uh, it's at that point, you know, Billy Graham, uh, who I grew up with his grandkids. Um, he he was a very adamant Democrat his whole entire life until those late 60s with Nixon coming in. And he actually he actually um, what is it when you uh, like to say uh, endorse he endorsed yeah. Nixon okay. later on before he died. He said that was the worst decision he ever. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. But but what we see is in, in the 1960s, there's this huge there was so much of the evangelical movement that was actually trying to help civil rights. And then something happens when the money comes and we see this complete switchover. Wow. And, um, and that I think is just another example of we've, this is a, this isn't a, oh, our ancestors did this. This is, this is happening now. Yeah. And this is happening now. Look at incarceration of black men now. I mean, this is happening now. Um, there is yeah it's it, it's horrible I, I i agree and i think that you know if the country was built on christian principles then you cannot separate those christian principles from the the government right we say you can't so then if we're if if we're really trying to live out the christian and biblical principles then we should be doing that the the proper way and not trying to cloak it in you know our morality and what we you know well, I think this and, and, and pushing certain agendas because it ends up hurting a certain group of people. Like I said, the right. over incarceration of, of, you know, African-Americans again, African-American men receive 20% more time. Well, 19% more time for the same crime as their white counterparts with the exact same criminal record. Right. So my question is why aren't conservative Christians speaking up against that? These are facts, right? But if we're, if we're want to be just, and we want to, we want to live out those biblical principles of, 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 you know, God loves everybody. Then why aren't conservative Christians speaking up against these atrocities? Is it because they are not, is it ignorance or negligence? I've asked that question before. Are they ignorant of the atrocities or are they negligent knowing the atrocities are there and just like, up oh, doesn't really affect us. So we're just going to keep it moving. I think it's fear. Mm, okay. I yeah, think it's fear. And I, I think it's fear because I think that's why they have to. People need to believe that they're good, right? People need to, and, right. and, and you can't just fake it. So what they're going to do is they're going to grab on to an issue like abortion or something like that. And the potential to save people rather than actually getting down in the nitty gritty and wiping and washing the feet of people that are right in front of them. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's you just said a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and fear of what? I think it's fear of loss of control. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm having to speak for myself mm -hmm. um, more than anything. You know, I grew up in a town that maybe had 10 black families. Right. And so 
when I left North Carolina, I intentionally left it because I needed, I recognized that I needed to, to go and grow and experience other cultures. However, even in the desire to do that, I think there's still a fear that's innate there. Um, have y'all heard of uh, Resma Minikam? Have no, y'all heard of him as a, okay, so he's this writer. Uh, I'm gonna actually, I have, so I'm actually reading this. This is My Grandmother's Hands, right? It's the name okay. of the book. Um, he is a, a, a trauma psychologist, but he deals with the idea of, um, of what he calls white body supremacy. And he, he talks about how racism to him, it's, it's weird because he's kind of a little bit different than the anti-racist movement. He's saying, and let, let's think of it less as a mind thing, uh, even though it is a mind thing, but we need to remember that our brain has three different parts. And our brain having three different parts, that, that lower end brain is that reptilian brain. And that reptilian brain immediately responds to fear before anything else, before we can think about it, before we can do it. And all things, yeah. right, and, and it all does that. And so epigenetics, you know what epigenetics is? The idea that, that what has happened to generations before me, I am feeling their trauma in my DNA. Right. So yeah. that DNA has been encoded. So, so for you, slave ancestors that were down there, you have encoded into your DNA, their response to trauma, as well as me as a, as a white guy has also experienced a response to that form of trauma too, not in the same sense of trauma, but that trauma and, and that it's, it's that bodied, um, it's that bodied trauma that creates this sort of white body supremacy um more than so even the mind like somebody could and this is where i think like all the people that i know uh, that i love that are super republican super don't think they're racist at all and hate being called that and i'm thinking but it's there we see it in the trauma it's in it's embalmed in who you are right. and that's the nature and the only way we're going to begin changing that is if we begin with really fixing the nature of the trauma itself within the person socially. What do you mean by fixing the nature? Are you talking about people just need to go to therapy? Do we need to sit down and talk about it as a group? What, what do we do with that? All the, all the above. I, I, you know, I think the first thing that we have to do though is recognize, you know, we were talking and I said, repent, you know, but the big thing to repent from is also that when you have manifest destiny, this is mine. This is, should, should be mine. This is, should be mine. And then it comes to ultimate, you know, corporate identity where even churches now are corporate identities. Right. And that means that the people that are going there are commodities, mm. right? People that are going to the church. So we're talking in, we're talking in economics about yeah. people, right. Constantly. So this is just more and more falling down. So what we have to do is recognize that entire system Mm-hmm. is a corrupt system and we have to say no to it and instead of, and that and that includes recognizing that americans christianity that the focus on the individual salvation that's fine keep it whatever but also what about the social gospel what about the social gospel how do we interact as a community like we were talking before right like how do we bring different groups together unity and diversity i think that's the beginning so you, you said a word there like four different times, recognize, <laughs> right? And I want to yeah. get to that. 
So how does one recognize his or her own stench of racism or whatever? We can ask men, how do men who live in a world, the male dominated world, how do we recognize it? Like what can happen? Because if the first step is recognition, because I'm not going to fix a problem that I don't think exists, right? So if I don't think racism exists and I'm a white person, I'm never going to fix it. Um, even, you know, it, if I'm a man and I don't think sexism is a problem, right. so how do we get people to recognize more? Because to me, it's blatant. Like racism is right there, but people can look at the the statistics. They can look at the the way people are treated. They can just go up and down and they still don't see it. So how do, do you think people are just not wanting to recognize it? Or is there a literal blockade in their mind to where they can't recognize it? And if so, how do we go over that blockade? God, such a question. <laughs> right. So, There's I mean, a lot I, to that. Sorry. Yeah. I, I apologize, no. man. F- okay. So I'm, I'm going to just once again speak for me and yeah, not of as, as, you know, you, you for, are not the white representative. For, for me, right, we're not doing that to you. <laughs> yeah, we've that. been in those positions. Appreciate next time, that. Next as, time, as, we're as, as many times. <laughs> sure. right. Thomas will speak for all white people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny how we get put in those positions that we're supposed to answer <laughs> no, for all right. black people. Like, are you kidding me? I didn't right. live those experiences, but yeah. I'm you, going through the reverse tokenism right now. What's going right, on? Go. That's right? it. Yeah. Right. What? Uh, no. For me, what I had to do is I had to sit down and eat with black people. Yes. Honestly, that's what I had to do. I had to take myself out of the comfort zone, recognize that I needed to, and I could do that. I did that my own recognition. I would say just I wanted to see the world in a bigger place. Now, don't get me wrong, because I was full of racist jargon microaggressiveness, um, everything, you name it. I mean, still, it's still a part of me, right? It's still something that I'm aware of. It's still something as I enter into conversations with anyone who's, uh, that's, that's a, that's, that's a person of color. It's still something that I kind of worry about. Usually I just know, and I just ask for forgiveness later, if there's something that does slip out or something that I don't know, and I'm not aware of. And I, have always come from the point where no matter what, even if I'm not sure that I understand that, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to ask him to explain it to me. Um, And just honestly, that's been very helpful to me Mm -hmm. to just have a sense of cultural humility there to Mm -hmm. say, you know, it's it's like a relationship with a loved one, right? That's not necessarily, it it just, you, you can't go at it with I'm right. And there's the only thing that matters is how I'm thinking because everybody's got this unique perception and I come from a very white perception and I needed to, I needed to enter into relationship. It's not going to be solved on Twitter. It's not going to be solved on Facebook. It's going to be solved by the touching of skin, by eating together. That's where it's going to be solved. So those are the worst places to try to solve. I know he's going to hit you with a great one. I'm going to ask you a Uh, simple but complex question. You said you sat down with Black people. Where did you find us? Chicago. (laughs) Chicago. No, but I asked. But where are you talking about in Chicago? Yeah, I I see where you're going with this. There's so much separation. Like, we may work together, but we don't go home together, right? Right. So so where, in what space, because we can't talk about this at work, right? So in what space? does a white person go out and find black people that they can sit and have a conversation with? Yeah, I would say all of that was the university for me. Mm, Uh, I think the university absolutely brought that 
um, to me. You know, I ended up um, having an Indian uh, uh, roommate my second year in Chicago. Um, I, can't, I think it came from Nepal, Nepal area. But yeah, I mean, just asking him cultural questions, really living with him in that process was a huge, huge help for me. Um, and then, but that's even now the, the program that I'm at, right? So the program that I'm at for my clinical uh, psych program is very social justice oriented, very anti-racist oriented and not a lot of clinical psych programs have that yet, right? Um, and so I am uh, by far the minority. I'm one of maybe five white guys in the whole program. And so it is ultimately consistently there trying to enter into those conversations, even though I recognize that I'm going to be naive. You know, I um, had a great conversation with uh, um, a Black woman who was in my group for a social cultural diversity class. And she, we were talking about different churches and stuff that we had all gone through. And it was very interesting watching you know, kind of the white people in the group talk about how we've moved from church to church to church, trying to find one that we really identify with, right? And and uh, this black woman, she's just like, well, every time I go into church, I'm having to negotiate my own space. I'm having to negotiate who I am in this place and having to look at everything around me. And I mean, here I am, you know, <laughs> midlife, and I've never thought about that before. There it is, a learning opportunity. And there's something about cultural humility in those situations that allows a person to learn from another. And I would have never done that if I hadn't sat down and had that conversation. That's interesting, because I feel like, for the most part, growing up, I grew up in a Black church. Uh, that's all we dealt with, Baptist church. And then as I got older, I was like, you know, I feel like I got too old for the hooping and hollering. I got too old mm. for the dancing in church. Still love the music. But, you know, there's a lot of things that was about the black church. I felt like I was missing. Like, I need you to instruct. I need you to teach me. I need you to talk to me. I'm doing my own teaching while I'm sitting in the, the choir stand. So mm -hmm. then me and my wife go out and venture for, I mean, venture out for white churches just for where we, a place where we can be fed, a place that's actually doing small groups and things of that nature. And I did catch myself in that position where I'm like, so how am I going to be viewed here? Mm. Am I really just somebody in a pew or is this somebody, hey, we got one. Why don't we put him in this position? Why don't right. we put him out front where everybody can see we have black people here? Hey, mm. let's make this guy a deacon because we need somebody on the deacon staff. Hey, why don't we bring this guy and do this? So I understand that woman, what she was saying is, what is my position here? How am I going to be viewed? How am I going to be able to really worship? How am I actually going to grow in this position where I am one of 10 maybe black families in this church. That was interesting. I like that. So with that, how do you reach that person without putting a spotlight on them? How do you reach that person without saying, yes, I see you because you're only one of five black faces I see out in the crowd and still able to bring Jesus to them in a way that's not, I don't know, just totally disrespectful. I can't find the right word for that, but just in a way where it's not a crutch. Um, yeah, maybe you can explain my horrible question with your great answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is a great question. Okay. Um, I think as I've matured in my Christian faith, I think when I was young, I, we have that, you know, growing up, it always was like, 
who are you going to go do missions to? Who are you going to go do that? And I think I've just dropped that whole part of my faith off, not because I don't care about that, but because I recognize that the, the most change happens when you enter into anything with somebody, when you minimize the agenda, period, as much as I possibly can. Like, I mean, obviously we're all going to have some sort of something at motivation or whatever that, that does that. But it, it's always been vital for me to, to do that because then when I'm talking to that person, I'm not thinking of things to say, right? I'm not getting to a point. Instead, I'm listening to their story. And mm. that usually moves me, you know, uh, and that, I mean, that goes just for anybody individually. Hearing people's stories is, is one of the most profound things a person can do. And I think, you know, the, the one thing that I've been really interested in and learned from these uh, clinical psych classes is being a, being a psychotherapist is not giving people answers. It's just listening to them. Yes. And yeah. that is huge, you know, uh, and it's crying with them, whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. It's, it's the affirmation of the person. That's what people need. And that's what people want. And I, I think that's key, but then how do we do that? Right. On a collective level as well. And that's a question we have to ask. How do we like as white culture begin to listen to the story better. Ooh, and I yeah. think it once again starts with repent. Yes. And, and I think you said something earlier about um I, I can't I can't get the exact word you use, but it's like being aware and like humble that your culture isn't the only culture and it's not that like you, you shouldn't be there's an awareness there's an awakening that has to happen on the individual level and i think the fact that you went out to seek those conversations at your university you go out and seek those conversations in your personal life um you know i, I will just speak on behalf of a lot of black people like you shouldn't be scared of us. Come talk to us. We have opinions. We have, we have thoughts, we have ideologies, right? So there's mm -hmm. no way I'm going to learn more about women's rights. For example, if I never talk to women and I'm not going to learn more about um, native Americans, if I've never talked to native Americans. So right. the only way we can get this, this boat moving, we have to go and we have to be willing to listen. And I think this is something important. People have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing mm -hmm. to to understand that your entire way that you were raised could quite possibly be wrong. The thing mm. that you listen to could quite possibly be wrong. So I know some people who are either atheist or Islamic or something like that. And I go into the conversation saying, I believe this, but just as much as I believe this thing is so, they believe this thing is not so if I'm talking to an atheist. Mm -hmm. So, and I right. just want, and I want them to respect the fact that I believe this is so. So I'm going to respect the fact that they believe this is not so. And now we can be in again to have a conversation and I can gain their perspective. There right. you go. And I like the whole thing where you said that uh, your parents might've taught you wrong or your, their parents might've taught you, them wrong. I feel like that's awesome to bring up in these conversations because a lot of people like when Jesus talked to the Sumerian woman and she said, our people learned this. Our people were taught this about you guys, about the Jewish people. And Jesus nicely informed her, well, y'all was wrong. Y'all was totally wrong. Y'all was off base. Is there a way that we can have these conversations without upsetting people? Because he was able to get through to her. How can we get through to each other racially by talking about race in religion, race in church? 
is it yeah. possible? Shoot. Yeah. yeah, it's just going to take certain leaders, I think, to really come out and do that in a way. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, so, I mean, when it was me, I definitely, I was like, what, what do I need to give reparations for? What do I need to do that? And it wasn't until I read Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, which is actually about sexism, um, but then I was able to apply it to see the notion of privilege. And, and it was just like, oh yeah, holy cow, I have so much privilege. I am coming from a privileged place. And mm -hmm. that first recognition that I was oh so deadly wrong allowed an opening to say, well, how else am I wrong? And yeah. and that was an important step, um, even if even though it hurt. It hurt because then I could think of so many conversations that I had where I had said the wrong thing. Like for me now, I think about ways that uh, I've hurt women, ways that I've hurt uh, LGBTQ, right? With certain things that I've said in the past. And um, yeah, that's just, it, it's a growing experience and, and it's going to take time, but we have to do it. There you go, people, we have to do it. So people examine yourself now for the sake of time because i'm sure we can continue talking with you john but we're gonna have to close this up uh people i know you used to us having real short uh chapters but man this was a good conversation so hopefully we get to have john on again and we'll go ahead and get this wrapped up people this was another episode another chapter of the black minds matter podcast um of course i'm mac my man rev over there please people reach out to us we ain't hard to find come check us out at you know, Instagram, check us out on, hit us on our email. Um, the email, matter of fact, is the Nile. Oh, I just knocked over my mic. Sorry, folks. At the Nile dot EST 1981 at Gmail. And please search for us. If I missed anything or if we missed anything, if you feel like there was anything that should have been said that wasn't said, contact us, reach out for us. Maybe we get those questions or your comments out when we have a later panel with a few other guests. But in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up and talk to y'all next time. This has been another Now production. Come back and join us and we leave you as we always do. Peace and love. We out. What's up, everybody? This is Mac. You just listened to another chapter of the Black Minds Matter podcast. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe, rate, and review. Any comments or questions, we want you to send it to our email, denial.est1981 at gmail.com. Check us out on IG, also at denial.est1981. Peace, love. We out.